that's some Mark Seidenberg humor for you. Welcome everyone. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another reading meeting, taking time out of your Sunday to be here with us. We're happy to have you. Happy to see returning faces, new faces. Um, and this week we're excited because we're joined by Dr. Rebecca Treeman, who if you may don't know, I have a personal connection to. She's the reason I'm in this, this field. Uh, this is who I did my doctoral studies with. And uh, if you don't know that she really is the spelling researcher, then you're going to learn today because she really is the woman to go to when you want to know more about spelling. So thanks for joining us today, Becky. Yeah, thanks nice for being with us. I, I think we need to talk about Run with the Wind. <laughs> yeah. I feel like so, that happens. And then, and then at the end, at the end, she says, after Lisa corrects her and says, oh, it's wind, she says, I've only, yes, but I've only read it. And I, I think that was really, somebody was really very clever because it points out that um, there are these words, not like wind and wind, where um, you know the word, uh, you know what it means, uh, but you actually don't uh, uh, know the pronunciation or you haven't connected the printed form of the word with a pronunciation you might've heard. And the other thing about it is it's, like if you think about it in terms of the self-teaching hypothesis, it's kind of a paradox because she says, run like the wind. Well, that matches something in her spoken language vocabulary. And so it would come off as correct, but of course it's not. Okay, well, um, so hi, Becky, it's great to have you here. Nice to be here. What do you think we should talk about? So the, the title of the, that we had for this session is what research tells us about spelling. and. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about. But, you know, I think it's more broadly what spelling tells us about literacy, about reading, about reading and spelling and writing, you know, because um, if you say just like what research tells us about spelling, it kind of disconnects it in a way that I think this is uh, you and I really wouldn't, uh, we would, none of us would do uh, because we think of these things as related. And maybe um, we, we could start by just saying like, there might be people who would say, well, is spelling even something that matters? You know, I know you see you see headlines and things like, oh, we've got spell check, like we've, we've got computers. Who, who, what does it really matter that I'm a good speller or not? Yes, Becky. <laughs> yeah, well, like you were just saying, Mark, spelling is a part, spelling and writing are part of literacy and they're all connected. And so spelling is really part of this, this system, knowing how to read words, knowing how to spell words. And in fact, learning how to spell a word helps you learn how to read it better. Yes, yeah, so I would say- research it, each other. That's right. So, you know, maybe they're spell correcting, but that's missing the point that spelling is the production aspect of print, right? Right. And reading right. is the comprehension part. And, and the production part, aside from the fact that we do it, you know, it's right. Uh, it's not just whether you get the spelling correct. It's that learning about spelling is feeding back on informing reading. And they are parts of the same system, basically. Exactly. And so, exactly. you know, whether there's some tool that happens to allow you to correct spelling, it's really missing, missing that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. OK. So, um, what can we tell, where can we start? You know, I, you, you've talked in, done so much work and, and um, I guess I, I, and you have some examples that you wanna um, show people about 
kinds of production things that people, kids produce at various ages and points in development. We really, really want to get to those. Um, what kind of message do you think really we should try to pursue here? And what are the most important kinds of things people really should, we, we hope to get people to think about? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think thinking about uh, spelling development as a process, what, what's the beginning part of it? What are the, uh, what are the kinds of things that we see? What are the kinds of errors that we see? Uh, sometimes spelling development is seen in kind of an overly simple way that, you know, children go through this period where they can spell initial consonants. That's one stage. Then they go through another period where they add final consonants. That's another stage. Then they go through a period where they add vowels. And so there's kind of this overly simple way of seeing spelling development in terms of these very separate stages, one thing at a time. And I guess I'd like to convey that it's more complex than that. And that yes, phonology is important, being able to hear a word, analyze the sounds, spell the sounds but there's a lot more to spelling than phonology. So I'd like to convey that idea too. And I also heard you talking about the idea of development where it's, um, it's sort of continuous, it's gradual, uh, it change, people's kids' behavior changes, but it's not kind of um, first you're only able to do this and then you move to doing this and then you move to doing this, this sort of stage-like idea, which I think is intuitive the intuitive sort of folk way that many people think about things is it's not why is it what, what it's more complicated like like what i mean it's that they aren't discrete stages and that right. things are right. overlapping and right. so and, and and that there might it might be kind of not so good to think of it as stages because you'd miss that overlapping right. the benefits you get from that right and you'd miss the fact that even as children are uh, getting a better at one thing, they also have some abilities in other areas that you might have overlooked if you thought about them only being at one stage. Absolutely. You'd be cutting them off from things that they actually know. And of course, we're always being surprised at how much kids actually know at, and much earlier than we, we, we expected, even if it's only partial, you know, it's not complete. Exactly. exactly. So, um, so is it okay to talk about, like you did those studies of um, very young kids where you ask them, so they're producing scribbles of various sorts and you ask them uh, to draw versus write. I mean, they can't do either. So like, um, uh, but they nonetheless perform differently. So could, would you mind talking about those a little bit? Yeah, so that's something really cool. Um, as a preschool teacher or as a parent, you might say, oh, this child is just scribbling. Uh, you know, they. They're trying to, they say they're writing, but you know, it doesn't look like writing. They don't know anything yet about writing. But um, let me show an example. This is um, just kind of an anecdotal example. This is not from our, an actual study, but it's kind of what got us into this area of research. So um, let me share my screen here. Um, yeah, so if you can see this here, this is, um, let me go back to, I have those from my notations on it. So this is something that a two and a half year old made. And you know, you look at it and you say, okay, this is a scribble. So uh, the parent asked the child what, what they had done and the child said, okay, um, 
See this part here? I drew a circle here. This is a circle. And this is the part they were pointing to. Okay, a circle. And then what was particularly interesting, the child pointed to this part here. This is where I wrote my name. Now, if you're thinking of, you know, correct or incorrect, well, this is not, this is not, you know, anywhere close to the child's name, but notice how it has some of the visual characteristics of writing. So it's a little bit more linear. It's kind of on a slanted line there. It's smaller than the rest of it, denser than the rest of it. And that so, child was signing, signing his or her artwork. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is a two and a half year old child. And so what this suggested to us is that even a child this young might have some beginning knowledge about at least the visual characteristics of writing, how it's small, how it stands, how it looks different from pictures. And um, so that actually got us into doing some research to see, okay, so we ask kids to write, for example, the word sun. Then on another occasion, we ask them to draw a picture of the sun. We take those two uh, sets of productions, the writings and the drawings, and we look at their characteristics. We give them to adults who weren't there. We ask whether the adults can guess above the level predicted by chance, whether it was writing or whether it's drawing. And the amazing result is with kids, even between two, three years old, adults are better than random guessing at telling what's the writing and what's the drawing. So what does that tell us? It tells us that you know dismissing these kinds of things as scribbles is kind of not allowing us to see the knowledge that kids actually have. They're learning about the visual characteristics of writing. Now at this age, they don't have a knowledge of the chronological characteristics. They don't even know some of the letter shapes and how the letter shapes relate to the sounds. But this early learning about the visual characteristics of writing shows that they're paying attention to writing in the environment. And it shows that they're beginning to learn about it on their own. I mean, parents and teachers aren't you know, saying, Hey, take a look at writing. Writing is small. Kids are picking this up from their exposure. Can I, can I just interrupt with a question? Like, um, so if you had done the experiment and you had asked them if you had used ball versus like butterfly, and um, I guess I'm just wondering if their writing, which is scribble, uh, and I realize it was their name, not the name of the object, but I'm wondering if even in kids that young, you would elicit like, well, there's the picture of a ball versus a butterfly, and then there's the word, uh, and butterfly would be longer because the kid has picked up uh, even at that point um, that one of them is longer than the other. It's, it's not inconceivable that that would happen. We have actually looked at that. We've looked at whether children produce longer strings of, when we give them, for example, uh, magnetic letters to use so they don't have to form their own letters, and we ask whether they use longer, strings of letters for words that have more phonemes and words that have fewer phonemes. At that age, they don't. Not reliably. They don't, no. But they make things bigger, right? They, they make, they're, they're doing symbolic it, representation. Wait, no, tell exactly. us that. Exactly, so Molly, that's exactly right. If you ask a child to write the word volcano and you ask them to write the word raindrop, for example, um, they will make their writing a volcano, they'll use bigger letters or more <laughs> letters not because volcano has a lot of sounds, but because volcanoes are big. It's fascinating. So at this early age, they're reflecting kind of the size of the object, but not yeah, like, anything about the sounds. 
combining yeah. their knowledge of drawing with their little bit of some knowledge of print that like they've, they've it's symbolic but it's they're not doing the symbolizing of the sounds they're symbolizing the object still that's yeah right. that's a good point yeah okay so then what happens so I mean, I, I don't mean you should tell us what you'd like to go for, but I, I mean, I, I find the developmental sequence really interesting too. Yeah, and obviously yeah, you've done a lot about it. Right, and, right, right. But please take, the floor is yours. No, I think going, going, taking a developmental look at this. So kids, like we were saying, start learning about some of the visual characteristics of writing. They start learning about, and then they start learning about letters uh, and being able to form, especially common letters, letters from their own name. And uh, what's interesting there is that they uh, will often use letters, like Molly was saying, not for the sounds they represent, but maybe using more letters for um, bigger objects. And gradually they begin learning about letters symbolized, not something about the object itself, but something about the sound. And that's getting into what we sometimes call invented spelling or phonologically based spelling, where kids start now being able to use letters to represent the sounds in the word. And that's a really important step. And how do you, so in the history of writing, this was a big step when people move, okay, but, but that's, we now we know we have writing. So do you think this comes about because there's a parent or a caregiver who's interacting with a kid and saying, doing some pointing out of they're beginning to show, talk That's to the kid about often. letters and sounds? Right. right. It so it, it is a kind of instruction, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It often happens that way. Kids also um, sometimes begin picking that up through their own name. So my name is Becky. So I've got the B letter and I've got the B sound. And in some of our research, we've looked at children's ability to spell words that have sounds from their name, and they tend to get those sounds earlier than other sounds. So just writing out your own name is like a really huge step. It's not just cute. It, it actually it might be telling the a real a deep learning sort of uh, experience. Learning the name is kind of a bridge to begin to learning about how sound, how the letters symbolize sounds. You're getting practice letters from your name. Is there anything other that function other, other, in addition to the kid's name that functions that has that kind of powerful effect or is it really the kid's name? Well, one thing like letter names to that, to, mm -hmm. are those also? Important? Yeah, that's a great question. So letter names can be very helpful. Um, so let's say we're talking about the letter T. Uh, the name of that letter is, is T and it symbolizes the sound T. So you hear right in the name of the letter, right at the very beginning of the name of the letter, the sound that it symbolizes. So it's a little bit easier to link up this shape to the sound T because if you know the letter name, you're hearing that T sound right at the beginning. Compare that, for example, to the letter M. There, the M, M phoneme, it's in the name, but it's at the end. It's harder to pick out. So that one is a little harder. Now think about the letter Y, for example. That has a W at the beginning, but the letter Y normally symbolizes E or Y. It doesn't normally symbolize W. So that letter name is 
confusing or misleading to children, they tend to use the letter name as a cue to the sound that it represents. And that's a hard one. So um, I, I think we should tell everyone in case they don't know, Becky's done a, a, just an enormous body of research, uh, empirical research on children's behavior in spelling and reading and other things. And so she will have a study that is really gonna be related to all of these things. One of them, for example, was your study that showed that, you know, when the kid, when the name of the letter like B actually is used in the pronunciation of a word like, I don't know, beat, then there was some uh, advantage over the cases in which uh, there wasn't an M compared to, you know, meat or something like right. that. Right. Um, um, what do you think, uh, do you have any uh, insights or opinions about, um, so people who say, uh, conclude from this that we shouldn't teach kids letter names, we should teach them letter sounds. And mm -hmm. then I see people struggling to uh, uh, telling folks to say, well, you, you teach the kid uh, the sound, not the name, so it'll be buh, and also cut off that buh at the end because that's not actually part of the phony. And so practice saying, you know, a shorter version of it. Now, this is a real phonological phonetic sort of uh, confusion. And, uh, but, uh, but the more general question is, okay, the names are somewhat misleading. On balance, then uh, do we need to have alphabet songs that are emphasizing the names and the sounds? Like we have some of those, or do we want to just emphasize the sounds? And what about this idea that the sound is like, you could say the phoneme in isolation? Yeah. Yeah, well, as we know, we can't say some phonemes in isolation. We can't say- You know, I think you need to say that again because we don't all know. Stop consonants cannot be pronounced in isolation. So uh, they're struggling to say b versus b is-, you've, is got, you've got a pointless. You've got, you've got a vowel there. Right. It's impossible to say a phoneme like b in isolation. Right. Whenever you pronounce it, there is a vowel there. So right. the difference, you know, do you call it B? Do you call it B? Both of them have vowels. Both pronunciations have vowels. Right. Both are both are a uh, one's a. They're both CVs. Exactly. They're both. So so that doesn't make much difference. But I mean, we have these traditional names for them, so we'd be hard to get rid of them. But I don't know. Anyway, there is some research on this question because somebody's bringing up in the chat that in the UK, usually letter sounds are taught as opposed to letter names. Yes. Again, as Becky has a study on this too. Tell us yeah, that. I had, I had a chance to work with a colleague in England and we were exactly looking at this question about, um, you know, what kind of a difference does it make teaching letter sounds or, or you know, these consonant uh, but type uh, names in England versus teaching letter names in the United States. And it seems that whatever children learn first, they kind of learn it uh, by rote. Uh, so you're learning, you know, this says B or this says B, and you're learning that at first by rote. And then gradually they use what they learn first to help figure out how the system works. So in the United States, when you have this um, letter name focused instruction, the names usually help you. For most letters, they do help you. Uh, for some uh, letters such as uh, Y that we were talking about, uh, they hurt you. But um, in England, we have the same 
one sees the same sort of thing that um, letter sounds have some uh, disadvantages, some cases in which they can uh, hurt you as well. Like what, and, what are those? Well, one issue with um, teaching letter sounds is that you don't have sort of an overall label to refer to this letter as a whole. So what they do in England sometimes is they talk about the, um, you know, have the cut sound, but sometimes it's spelled with C and sometimes it's spelled with K. And if you talk about it as cup, that doesn't tell the child, should you spell it with a K or should you spell it with a C because both of those have the cut sound. So they end up talking about the kicking K or the curly K. So the word kangaroo, we should spell with a kicking K and the word cat, we should spell with a curly, curly well, K. So um, when you focus on letter sounds, uh, you kind of miss this idea that, you know, sometimes when there's two letters that make the same sound, you need a way to talk about those as letters. Indeed, and, and also, maybe we don't have to get into it, but we need a way to talk about them as phonemes that are abstract away from the fact that the pronunciation is influenced by the vowel that follows it. I mean, the things that are common to bat and bet and bit and so on, even though uh, the the part is um, not literally, the, uh, there's commonalities that make them the same instances of the same phoneme, even though the following sound is changing things. What, um, so what, so basically the misleading things that come from the um, inconsistencies in the, letter names, those also occur if you have little letter pronunciations, right? I mean, there's gonna be words that are pronounced like, I don't know, I can't think, you know, but. But if you think of the sound, if you teach the kid the sound for but is, for B is but, then that's gonna work for but, but it. Does it work as well for, for the word? It's not gonna work for boat, it work as well right. for boat. Right. Uh, right. So it's not clear to me there's a net win there. And, and I'm not sure there's a net win. Yeah. I'm not sure there's a net win. Okay. Um, either, so. however you're, however you, I mean, phonemes are abstract and difficult. And right. learning links between uh, spoken words and written words is difficult. And there's no magic bullet. It's not like all oh, these difficulties are gonna magically disappear if we teach children sounds or if we teach them names because whatever we teach, it's kind of an abstract, the phoneme is an abstraction. Yeah. Kids have to get to that. Yes. Now, Either so, so um, lead us through. So now we've got a kid who um, can spell their name. They're starting to begin to understand the inner, what you call the inner form of the word. Could you want to talk about like inner form versus the outer, uh, inner functions versus the outer form? Mm -hmm. Or yeah, is that? Whatever. I was talking earlier about sort of early learning about what words look like. Yeah. So from a very young age, children begin to learn that writing tends to be horizontal, writing tends to be small, writing tends to be dense. As they get older, they learn about certain letters um, go together more than other letters. Some letters are more common than other letters. Uh, some letters uh, you can have two in a row. Other letters you can't. So you can have LL, for example, but you can't have HH. So these are all things about the outer appearance of writing. And that's certainly important. 
Um, but what's also important uh, and what's primarily important about writing is how, it's, how it serves as a symbol, how, it, how letters symbolize, um, in the case of English, uh, speech sounds. So we, we can kind of talk about this outer side of writing, what it looks like, and then the inner function of writing, how it works to symbolize uh, phonemes, morphemes, and so on. And, and the picking up on the, what we would call sort of the simple, more obvious patterns in terms of the ways that letters combine, that's going to really depend on how much exposure to print kids have. So um, how much do you think kids are picking up here? And, and uh, have you looked at, at, you know, kids who are being read to more often or kids who have more access to books or any of that stuff? I mean, to... to or, or is this stuff that's so basic that, you know, it's not super sensitive to how much, mm -hmm. how much exposure they get? It's really hard, surprisingly hard, to quantify how much exposure kids <laughs> have to print. Uh, we could say, oh, well, you just ask the parents, how much do you read to your children? Uh, parents tend to want to say, oh, I read, you know, half an hour every night before bedtime, and I also read to my child before their nap. So sometimes parents, you know, want to kind of portray themselves as great parents, and they might uh, overemphasize over. Yeah, I know. They read to it's kids. Um, the other issue is that when you're reading to your child, what is the child actually looking at? The child is not actually looking at the print very much. They're looking at the pictures. The pictures they can get meaning out, out of. The pictures are more interesting to them. So kids tend to think of the meaning of a book as coming a lot from the pictures. And they're not spending much time looking at the print. There's some really cool studies where they put little cameras on kids and they can see where their eyes are looking. And do you know the percentage of the time that kids are looking at the pictures as opposed to the print? It's like 95% of the time they're looking yeah. at the pictures. So we can say, oh, I expose my child to print a lot. I read to them a lot. But out of that time, if it's the normal kind of reading that you do, only 5% of the time the child is looking at the print. Yes, yeah, so, you're saying yeah. that kids who are like four years old or three and a half, four years old are nonetheless picking up on statistics about how letters, properties of letters, like you won't get double J's at the beginning and you will get certain common well, combinations. Half, uh, by the time they're like five, six years old, they're picking up on that. A, a three-year-old isn't going to be picking up on the fact that LL is more common than HH. Okay. I'm correct. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, what children are picking up when they're being read to are probably these more general things about, okay, there's some squiggles in the book and the squiggles tend to be horizontal and they tend to be, you know, under the pictures but they're not picking up a whole lot more detailed. And there's these sort of little black squiggles under the pictures. And I, I like to look at the pictures and I kind of ignore those squiggles. Okay, so, but now they're in kindergarten, first grade and they're just like memorizing all the spellings. Well, memorizing the spellings. Kids I, are it's a leading not question. so much memorizing spellings. Let me give you some examples here of the kinds of spellings that kids are, are producing. Um, okay, here's a nice one. Oops, let me, let me move along. Okay, so this is a, this is a, a first grader here. And uh, this is from a classroom where children are encouraged to um, 
draw a picture, uh, write their name at the top, write a little story. So here's a little story that he wrote, J-A-C-J-U-P-T. Now, can you guys read this? That's the teacher's writing over there, but I bet you can read it without the teacher's writing. Jack jumped, right? He was in a castle. He looks like he jumped to the ground there. Neither one of those words is correctly spelled. So the child was not you know, memorizing spellings that they had seen. This is something that the child produced based on beginning to understand, okay, these letters uh, symbolize parts of words. How do I write Jack? They came up with J-A-C, not correct, but very readable. They came up with J-U-P-T for jump. That's a really interesting spelling. Um, it's not correct, it's readable. They left out the M. Now that's a very common error that we see in early spelling. The nasal, what we call that, the m nasal, it kind of goes as a unit with the vowel. So they just use, they, they leave that out, they use the vowel. And what's that T doing there, jumped? They didn't use an ED, they use a T. That's how, it, that's how it's pronounced, jumped. Now in English, we spell that morpheme, whether the morpheme is pronounced as T or D or UD, we use the ED spelling but the child is spelling it the way it sounds in this word with a, with a T. So this is what we sometimes call invented spelling. And uh, this really shows that kids are not memorizing in many cases. Yeah, very common words they may memorize, but in many cases, they're coming up with their own spellings. Would it be too much of an interruption to ask you know, that, that leaving out of the M and other uh, uh, consonants of that sort is something that is, happens frequently. How would you bring the child's attention to the fact that there's another sound there that has to be spelled? Well, this is where uh, phonemic awareness instruction can come in. Children uh, will often omit uh, consonants in clusters. I gave you the example of the J-U-P. T for jumped where they omitted the M. There are also a number of cases in which children omit consonants in initial clusters. So they might spell the word snake as S-A-K. So practice with phonological awareness, dividing clusters into their smaller components, snake, s, n, it's not just sna, it's a s and a n. So breaking up clusters into and their individual can be very and is that, a, is that something you would do with spoken language or with coupling spoken language and, and print? I think it's probably most helpful coupling the spoken language with the print. So yeah, I think the evidence is good. Unit can be divided into parts. The first part is that we can write with an S, the second part we can write with an N. So I think this is a good example of how coupling the phonemic awareness and the letters can be very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's an issue that's um, at the forefront of uh, discussions about different approaches to instruction uh, right now. Um, but, but my reading of the literature is like yours. It's pretty clear that you couple the two and because they're influencing one another and because phonemes depend in part on knowledge the fact that they're represented in print. And so, you know, coupling the two is going to help you understand the structure of the spoken word and how it's represented in print. Right. right. Um, okay, so we're, we're, the kid is catching on. 
What's the role of instruction or how do people promote further development or does it just magic, you know, does the kid, kids are smart and it just happens? What, what, how, so you know what happens next. Um, maybe you could just clue us in on what develops. Yeah, so I mean, one view is that kids will just sort of pick all of this up as long as they have enough exposure to print. And there certainly are some uh, classrooms that adopt that philosophy. And in fact, the example that I just gave you of Jack Jump, that was from a child in a classroom where the teacher had a strong commitment to the idea that children will learn to spell and learn to read without uh, explicit instruction. And so the teacher would, uh, have the children read what they wrote to her, but wouldn't point out misspellings, wouldn't correct misspellings and kind of took the attitude that the spelling is gonna improve um, through exposure to print. And yeah, the children in this class did improve in their spelling across the course of the school year. Uh, children do have these uh, statistical learning skills, this ability to pick up uh, information on their own, but, English spelling is complex and we can speed that along through instruction. The fact that kids can pick up some things on their own doesn't mean that we should say, well, this is how we want to teach. We just want to lay off and let them sort of soak in the system on their own. Um, children can learn more quickly and uh, better and more completely if we sort of guide them along. Um, so I, I, I'm hoping you'll talk a lot more about that. Um, so, but, but the, a preliminary question might be, again, put it, put aside if it's turning off track, if it's going too far off track. Uh, how do you think about what people know when they know sound spelling, how to spell, spoke, you know, spell to dictation? That is, um, you know, I mean, it was implicit in what you said. You said that there are statistical patterns and statistical learning, but maybe you could just sort of say something about, well, what is it that a kid knows when they know how to spell in English? And uh, is it like, you know, just like there are sight words in reading, there are sight words in spelling. Is it, uh, what's the role of making explicit, like the rules for spelling versus, like, there's some balance between instruction and the kid learning from experience, maybe feedback, but what, what are they learning? How is this information represented and how does that compare to the ways people kind of traditionally have thought about those? I think traditionally, uh, both with reading and with spelling, there's this, been this distinction made between um, sight words and words that can be sort of sounded out. So um, the idea is that there's some words that you know you just have to memorize. They don't follow any rules. There's other words that you can figure out how to read or figure out how to spell based on having uh, this set of rules. But the idea of putting words into these two disparate sets, that's really uh, too simple because uh, many words that um, have a less common spelling pattern, it's still not just something totally random. And um, 
it's too simple to describe the language as having you know, this set of regular rules and then everything else is exceptions to that. Um, yeah. I think I'm fruitful in, and uh, this is what your research is all about, Mark, a more fruitful way of viewing languages in terms of statistical patterns. And some of them hold very frequently, some of them yes. are less common, but it's not this clear yes. distinction between here's the regular words that follow the rules and here's the exception words that just have to be memorized. Yeah, I would just make one point, which I've said before, which is if you look at curricula, they don't actually agree on how many, what the rules are or, or how many sight words there are. They're all over the place. Exactly. But what I, what I really want to ask is, is there a similar, similar notion that applies to spelling? Namely, for the most part, sound spelling relations are pretty, you know, consistent. And then there's the oddball ones for because of morphology or some other things that you've described and studied. Uh, and they just have to be the ones that are memorized. So one could take that same sort of a theory, whether it's good or bad for reading, and apply it to spelling, right? And, and so do you think the same issues arise, basically? The same issues arise as for reading, yeah. Spelling is more complex than reading, um, but the same issues arise with this idea about a simple dichotomy between regular and irregular words. I mean, it works less well for spelling because Lots of sounds have multiple spellings, whereas, yes, there are letter patterns that have multiple pronunciations, but um, spellings particularly is a little bit more um, many to one for yeah. sound to, to spell. Yeah, I was thinking about even just that Jack jumped uh, example. If a teacher is not really thinking about the, the sound, the d sound at the end of the t sound, like the, we would commend a kid for doing that T representation if we think about it that way. But if you're not thinking about it that way, you'd be like, "What? where, where are you getting this from? Yeah, yeah. And that, I think that's another point I'd like to make is that the more teachers know about spelling, the more teachers know about the kinds of common spelling errors, the better they can look at a child's spelling and understand what the child was doing right as well as what the child was uh, doing wrong. Um, I could give some more examples of uh, spellings. Uh, Please. Okay, let me. Uh... While you're pulling that up, I just would recommend the article that um, um, you and Mal Joshi and uh, uh, two other, Louisa Motes and uh, Suzanne Carrick wrote for uh, American Educator in 2009. It's just a beautiful, accessible, but nonetheless scholarly um, overview of uh, English spelling and various influences on it and why this system is looks the way it, it, it does. And having it, even that level of understanding of um, spelling is really, uh, is eye-opening and it's really helpful. The boy found Great. the balloon and the balloon was happy. So here we see, um, found. So this is an interesting spelling. The child left out the N, and that's similar to leaving out the M in jumped. Uh, these are nasal sounds uh, that are often left out in clusters. Um, the child spelled found with an A, found. And you know, you might look at that and say, A, what's an A doing here? The child must not have really listened to that word very well. The child must have poor phonemic analysis there. 
But when you actually think about it, and we've documented this kind of thing, found, ah, 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 found, that's a diphthong, ah. So the child is representing that first part of the diphthong there. They actually have listened carefully to the word. It's not the correct spelling, but it shows that kind of um, phonemic awareness. Here's one I like. Can anybody in the audience read this one? My dog can read and write. He can read a story. My dog can read and write. He can read a story. Story, S-O-R-E-Y, what's going on there? Well, that's what we were talking about before. Initial co co consonant clusters being difficult to segment, child leaving out the test sound there. EY, well, that's wrong for story, but there's words like key, other words that have EY for the E sound. So again, being able to look at the spelling, analyze what the child is doing right, what the child is doing wrong, um, the kind of uh, phonemic awareness uh, that the child may need uh, to move forward. So I think this kind of thing can be very useful for teachers kind of in identifying where kids are in the process. So can we talk about that? Um, clearly, uh, the uh, production productions, the things the kids are writing here and uh, for researchers, you know, to look at them, we get really great uh, information about the state of the kids' knowledge and 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 their source of their source of data, and 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 information about how the system develops, and um, and it can be useful for a teacher in a similar sort of way. Um, but what do you think about it as an activity? So, um, you know, at some point, I, I don't have a strong strong view on this. So as there, there's a point in development where the child um, is encouraged to write as early as possible and their, their, their writing is exhibiting uh, increasing sophistication in terms of you know, what, what is being represented. Uh, on the other hand, they're making errors. And uh, there's a question about the extent to, uh, so one thing is it's, another, it's a really great way to do some linking of print and sign. Even if the kid's making an error, there's a, it's so in terms of a you know sort of phonemic level of representation, developing that, it's probably really useful. Uh, but I'm wondering about its other effects on the kid. So, in particular, whether they learn from their own mistakes and whether it makes it harder for them to recover eventually, and at what point people have to sort of feed, provide feedback that leads them into the correct the correct spellings or what. Yeah, I know this is a big issue for teachers. Uh, at what point do we start expecting conventional spelling? And I guess uh, my, my, yes. I, I, the only thing I'm trying to add to that discussion is kids learn from their own behavior. And we may learn from what we see, but if the kid isn't getting feedback, or they're getting feedback which says, oh, isn't that great? Look what Johnny did, Mary. Um, I'm, I'm, there are, I'm always thinking of the secondary un, you know, unintended consequences, which is uh, you're also learning something that might not be exactly right there. I'm not saying it's a devastating problem, 
it's something that one might want to also take into consideration. You don't want kids learning from the mis misspellings, and at some point, there's going to have to be some yeah. redirection yeah. and feedback. Um, I think kids do need feedback, and in the examples uh, that I was giving, I was suggesting some of the kinds of feedback that can be useful. With a young child, these are like six-year-olds, we can't give feedback on every single spelling mistake, but we can pick out things that are occurring pretty frequently and give feedback on those. So for example, in the boy who was writing about, you know, my dog can read and write a story. If we began to see a number of examples with difficulty with initial consonant clusters, we might work on those, give feedback on that. Uh, we yeah. might not worry so much about story ending with a Y as compared to an EY, but we might really decide to give our feedback on those initial consonant clusters. Yeah. So children do need feedback on their spelling, and the better more teachers know about it, the better better feedback they can give, and that's yeah. going to help move children toward correct spelling. It takes a long time. English is a complicated writing system. We all as adults make spelling mistakes. Um, so we need to move gradually. Um. It is remarkable how even as adults, like there are some words that just like, they're not sight words for like me. They're, they are not a memorized spelling. I have to spell them out every time. It's a tough, tough task spelling. Well, luckily, we can get support from other sorts of, um, of uh, tools. Um, so again, Becky, you know, your, your research is really beautifully about development and changes in, you know, looking at various kinds of behavior to infer what's going on in the kid's head, what they're learning, and what the path is. And I don't want to hold you to having to say things um, about uh, instruction or, 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 or that are not the focus of, of your work. I, I, I guess I have a question about, you know, well, what you can give feedback of various sorts, but do you need to teach the kid the rule for pronouncing, you know, a vowel when it's followed by a double consonant and a, you know, so you're, you're, you were probably going to talk about, you know, the way in which kids start to learn about the contextual dependency of pronunciations, and then you can start to teach that. And I guess I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about, on the one hand, what develops, and on the other hand, well, is there anything you can say about what would make it easier or harder for the kids to learn this stuff? Yeah, so, so far, we've been talking about kind of early spelling, um, simple words. Um, as children get older, we get into some of what you were just describing here, the effects of context, how a certain phoneme may be spelled one way when it's followed in by other phonemes, when it occurs in certain positions of a word, and that very same phoneme may be spelled in a different way when it occurs in other positions of a word or in other contexts. And um, there are some rules and patterns that deal with these, um, that deal with context that can be uh, taught. So for example, if we think about uh, double consonants, um, there's some consonants just, just never double, H, H, K, K. Um, those rarely or never double. But then there are other rules. Doubling tends to occur 
um, in the middles and at the ends of words and not at the beginnings of words. It tends to occur in certain kinds of contexts and not in others. And those uh, kinds of things uh, can, be, can be taught. So we can, um, and like you said, I'm not having developed spelling programs. I can't you know, say the spelling program is better than that spelling program, but um, I just come to the idea that the English writing system is not the chaotic mess that we sometimes think. There are rules and patterns and we can teach those. Yes, I, I, you know, it's the balance between various kinds of learning experiences that we're, we're still trying to figure out. Because on the one hand, uh, we aren't going to, no one's going to teach all of the rules governing the pronunciation of words in English. It, it would be a mess. Uh, there'd be rules that conflict in various ways. And, um, and yet one does see curricula that are very loaded on the child being taught, you know, it's like the I before E rule, but in, 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 in being explicit and put into words, but for all sorts of patterns. <laughs> I tend to think this is like overkill in terms of, you need examples of that. You may be able to find really crucial books that if you teach the kid, not only will they have learned something about some interesting um, and, and possibly complicated uh, you know, alternation, different ways of doing spelling things in English, but um, if they'll start to look for those things maybe on their own. But but the idea that you're gonna teach it all, you know, I think is really, um, I think that's a good idea. I mean, it seems to me what you want is those well-timed and targeted explicit instruction, which various studies have shown is really important coupled with giving the kids other opportunities or setups that will indeed result in learning because the kid will be able to figure out, oh, that's not, that must not have been right. It doesn't look right to me, you know, or, um, uh, or uh, I mean, there could be other situations where it's not just learning a rule, but there's other ways to, to learn something about the spellings. I guess I was hoping that you would, you know, weigh in on that. Yeah, so I think when um, kids begin learning that in order to spell a sound, you sometimes need to consider the surrounding sounds or the position of that sound in a word. You can teach that for some cases, and then that can get children into thinking that, hey, this is something I need to consider in other cases as well. So they'll be considering context, not only in the case that you taught, but they'll be led to consider context in other cases as well. So that could be an example of how teaching a particular phenomenon can sort of inform the child in to be looking for that in other cases as well. Um, and there can be ways maybe to structure instruction. I know we've talked some about that, you and I, Becky, about like thinking about you know the other ways of encouraging that statistical learning or the noticing patterns that happen of like if you're going to have a word list like how would you develop a word list would it be thematic or would it be based on something else mm -hmm. maybe it would be based on a pattern or something exactly um i've certainly seen when i was a child we had uh you know got a list of words on monday we have to memorize them for a test on friday 
And the words were just kind of random words. They were chosen, yeah. okay, it's Halloween. So we have to learn the word pumpkin and we have to learn the word trick or treat and we have to learn the word ghost. They didn't have any spelling patterns in common. And so that just encourages us to memorize those words. But if we have a list of spelling words that have a particular spelling pattern in common, words with you know, the same cluster, words with you know, um, certain vowel pattern, then it encourages us to look for that pattern, to learn about that pattern. In giving that list to kids, teachers can talk about that pattern, instruct kids on that pattern. So this traditional idea about you know, spelling lists of just based on word frequency or based on content yeah. really doesn't encourage the kind of thinking about spelling that we want kids to be doing. Yeah. Okay. Does the kid know how to spell? Have we got there? <laughs> so, I mean, you've talked about various theories of how kids get ahead beyond we talked about non-phonological factors. Maybe we could talk about some of the non-phonological factors that enter into kids' spelling. Yeah, so the example that I shared a little while ago with jumped would be kind of a simple example um, about how Sorry. jumped, the child who spelled jumped with a T instead of an E-D. Why do you think that's morphology rather than, that's that's phon phonemically, that's pretty close to what it's um, done. Yeah, the child was doing it phonemically. But that's a case where to do it correctly, you need to consider morphology. Uh, so not correctly there, you need to consider morphology. Yeah, so, so what do you, so, but we don't teach the kid the past tense rule and that it has three allomorphs. So I, I guess, could you expand on that a bit? So clearly, Jumped is, is going to be spelled differently if you know that it has a past tense and that the past tense is typically regular, the regular past tense is spelled ED. I didn't know that there were three different ways to pronounce the past tense morpheme until I started doing research on it. So I guess I'm wondering what, yes, they, it's they need to know morphology to realize that it's like going to be spelled differently. But beyond that, how much does the kid have to be taught? When you were six years old, you probably spelled jumped with a T. You were probably thinking about the phonemes and you probably used a final T when you spelled jumped and a final yes. D when you spelled hemmed. And learning that these three, they, they all sound different. Uh, what's most natural for kids is to spell them differently. Learning that you have to spell them the same because they all represent the past tense. That's something pretty difficult for kids. I and guess what I'm just trying to spell out is spell out, so to speak, is what does the kid learn? I mean, but what the kid does is get feedback that words like uh, jumped and bust and, you know, baited, all those past tenses are spelled the same way. They're not learned, they do not learn uh, the rule that determines what, which of those forms is appropriate, which is conditionalized on the previous pony. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is, yeah, they need to learn about morphology, but they don't need to learn how uh, the or it comes from seeing that various words in the past tense are spelled the same and knowing how to pronounce them. It's not giving the kid explicit knowledge of, well, you say it this way in this context and this way in that context. But explicit instruction could be helpful there. Yeah, I think what would it take? It would be like taking the form of showing kids that here's a bunch of 
of, well, they'd have to understand that there are verbs, actions, action words, and there's the past tense, which, you know, they get at some point, and look at how they're spelled. They're all spelled the same. Now, would you point out to them, oh, yeah, but they're actually not set the same. Can you hear that? No, I wouldn't point it out there. Yeah, I mean, that's they the already, thing. They already hear it. They're paying, they're paying too much attention to that. What they need to learn is that spelling does not always reflect sound. We talk yeah. so much about reflecting sound, but it doesn't always do that. The past yeah. tense is a great example of how it doesn't reflect sound. Yeah. And so we sometimes go overboard on spelling as representing sound, stress that too much. We, we don't want to stress that too much because in many cases with English, it reflects this level of morphology and yeah. not actually what words sound like. Yes, for sure. Thinking instructionally, I guess, because we've been talking about, you know, the spelling is so, is part of the same system as reading. Um, when, like, just, I know you're, again, we're not like giving specific inst instruction recommendations, but thinking about just like, when would you start spelling instruction? Would you be doing it always independently of reading? Would it be something to point out while you're reading? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's this, in this long tradition of thinking of spelling and reading as two separate subjects. So we do reading at one point then we do spelling at another time during the day. Spelling lessons and reading lessons are like two separate topics. But in fact, as we've been talking about, spelling and reading are closely connected. Um, and so we need to integrate them in our teaching as well. And um, just as sort of a side note, children who are good at spelling are almost always good at reading. Children who are good at reading are good at spelling. The correlation between those two skills is extremely high. And so treating them as two separate things is really misleading for many reasons. I wonder if um, people in the, who are listening and watching have examples of um, what, what you're talking about is activities that are in which reading and spelling are more closely coupled. I mean, you know, when you ask a kid to spell the dictation and, you know, read it back. I mean, you, there are ways in which to, to actually integrate or emphasize both the spelling aspect and the reading aspect in a more integrated way. So I guess I'm wondering if the people in the audience who are teachers really um, think of the of activities as kind of doing both things and bringing both of those systems uh, you know, it's like teaching more than one thing at a time. You're on the one hand, you're focused on teaching the kid about spelling. On the other hand, it's actually a lesson about reading as well. Right. And, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I would example. welcome comments. I see people active in the chat here. I would welcome comments and ideas about ways to integrate those in teaching. I yes, I would assume useful. that 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 would be really key. Um. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so. You have your own theory about that tries to put these pieces together. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Do you want to talk about you know the way in which children's spellings early on uh, errors are not just phonological and morphological, but they do things like uh, uh, letters from their names kind of get sprinkled in more often, and uh, 
they, you know, they saw some pattern and they just got to stick it in because they know something's supposed to be there. Uh, are there other non-phonological kinds of things that you wanted to emphasize or have we hit that? Yeah, I think we've talked about a lot of different things. Um, yeah, the theory of spelling development that we proposed, I'll just briefly mention this, uh, imp, integration of multiple patterns. And this label is just meant to get to the idea that there are multiple influences on spelling. So we talked a lot about phonology, that's definitely important, but morphology is important as well. Uh, I'm gonna throw in a word here, graphotactics. Graphotactics, what words look like, what letters tend to go together. We've been talking about that without necessarily using that word, but that's an important part of spelling. The fact that we can double an L, but not an H. The fact that we can use a double L at the end of a word, but except for the word llama, it never occurs at the beginning. So that's all graphotactics. So we have morphology, we have phonology, we have graphotactics. Learning to spell is integrating all of these different sources of information. And it's important to keep in mind that spelling is more than phonology. Yes, phonology, other um, levels and types of information as well. Um, you know, I think, oh, it's complicated, isn't it? You know, um, and I, if we went back to the morphology example for a moment. So the point about the past tense and also the plural is that the exact pronunciation is conditioned by the context in which it occurs. So there's like a bus, bust, bail, bailed, and beat, beaded. So there's three different ways to do the past tense there and they're all spelled E-D. Um, um, those are subtle phonological differences. And, you know, one can say, well, it's really helpful to introduce morphology that's inflectional morphology. But it's important to introduce morphology because it'll help the kid figure out jumped. But, you know, those are subtle phonological phonetic differences between how the suffix, those suffixes are pronounced. And you, this, this runs into, so, so the past tense rule, the morphological rule is phonologically conditioned. The exact form of the past tense or the plural or other tenses on verbs is, has a phonological component. It's not just purely a thing about, you know, morphemes being units of meaning and so on. So for example, if you are a kid who has a phonological impairment, you have difficulty with phonological awareness or developing an understanding of the structures of the spoken words. Um, that's gonna have an impact on your ability to learn correspondences between spelling and, and pronunciation and reading between pronunciation and spelling uh, in spelling. It's also gonna have an impact on your ability to learn the past tense. And, and, and we know this. So children who have phonological difficulties, uh, the kinds of errors that that produces in reading words and non-words aloud 
also predict making errors on, in, in, on the past tense. So um, my point here is these things are connected. It's not just spelling. It's not just phonology. It's not just more adding a morphological uh, uh, level or lesson because they're all actually uh, related to one another. The, the facts about morphology, phonological rules, yep. sorry, morphological rules have a phonological basis. And so those things are, again, another example of how the different parts are integrated. And uh, it is true, kids with phonological impairments who are having difficulty with decoding and, and sounding up and, and generalizing uh, also have difficulty with the past tense. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking so much about the past tense as an example of morphology, but I just want to say that there's many other cases um, yeah. where morphology is useful in spelling. And let me just give, give a quick example. Um, we often maintain the spelling of a base word when we add an ending, not just ed or er or ing or re. So when we make a more complex word, we often retain the spelling of the base. So if you think about the word later, see you later. The middle sound in there, later, it's called a tap. Later, you tap the, your tongue against the top of your mouth. And kids tend to spell that with a D. So in a word like letter, you got a flat tap there. They tend to spell it with a D. Later, you got that D. But if you think about a later means more late, it's related to the word late. The word late is in there. If you know how to spell late, there's not a tap there. So you can say, okay, that should be a, that should be a T. So you yeah. can use your knowledge of that root word Indeed. to figure out how to spell later. Indeed. So that's another example of uh, the role of morphology in spelling. Yeah, I, I sort of see it as spelling and sound and meaning coming together in ways you know, that Create, create a morphological system. Right. Do our, does our audience have like questions that are really um, challenging and, and, and would make us, I mean, uh, we, are there questions that we should be considering from people? There are always questions. Whether we have the answers is the well, real <laughs> No, but we could try to figure out what we don't know, is, which is important. Yeah. Um, Sorry, not trying to put anyone on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, if there, go ahead. No, uh, if anyone has a really pressing question, please bring it to the to the front. So, um, Becky, another little thing. So, um, I know you've started to look at this too. Um, what about kids whose pronounced pronunciations of words are different or quote unquote non-standard? So, you know, we have a lot of materials that really are oriented to kids who, who speak the quote unquote standard dialect, uh, but many, many people don't. And um, a lot of exercises and so on do not work as well for them. Could, could, could you say, say something about that? I mean, is, does that just mean differentiated instruction based on what the, 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 the phonology the, the accent or, or, or uh, phonology of the dialect that the person is speaking. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a great point. So for example, in African-American English, uh, we, we did study with, um, with people in Detroit and one feature of um, African-American English, especially there is, uh, I'm pronouncing a word like salad. It would be more of a T at the end, salad, salad. And we see that in kids uh, spelling. We see uh, errors from the point of view of conventional spelling that reflect uh, the children's pronunciations of the words in their dialect. And so I think there's two um, approaches that we could take there. One would be to develop somewhat different uh, methods or different examples to use for kids who speak one particular dialect as opposed to another. Uh, the second thing we can do is to ensure that teachers are familiar with the characteristics of how the dialect is going to affect the spelling and take those into account in giving feedback. So yeah, this is a good job of spelling the word the way it sounds um, in showing them that the conventional spelling reflects another possible way of saying the word. Yeah, I think it can be dealt with. It just isn't adequately. So, you know, there, there are exercises, activities that, you know, have, have a rationale and have a good basis, but that doesn't actually take into account the fact that there are differences in, that, that where the examples don't work as well for some people right. because they, right. they talk right. differently. Right. And, and it's not that yeah, it's, an, so we, it's, it's not something we couldn't deal with, but, uh, but that's different from adequately doing so. Right. So we want to make sure that the examples in any textbook or teaching materials are examples that work for as many as possible. That's we want to avoid examples that just don't work in a common dialect. Now, you're not going to cover every possible pronunciation option in every dialect, but, but pick examples that work for the majority. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're really trying to build the idea that spoken words, syllables say, consists of phonemes. If you use the final consonant in a monosyllabic word, and it's a consonant that is dropped routinely in one dialect, right. that wouldn't be a good case to you. Not a good example. Not a good right. example. It would be less effective for that kid. And the teacher could be aware of it. There are other kinds of examples one could use that don't have the same kind of problem. But I'm just trying to fit saying, I think we need to up our game on this a lot. We do, we do. That is a problem, I think, with current materials in some cases. So Becky, what are the most crucial issues for you about spelling going forward? Well, one thing I mean, we um, haven't really talked about so far today, there's so much to talk about. One thing we've, we haven't really talked about much today yet is individual differences among children. So um, children go through the same general um, processes in learning, but some children are quicker, some children are slower. Um, how do we sort of quantify where a child is? Um, traditionally, we give children a telling, spelling test. We look at the number of correct responses. Uh, there are some other approaches to try to say, this child is at the partial alphabetic stage. This child is at the full alphabetic stage. Um, so I think we need more work in thinking about how can we quantify where children are, um, what are the best and most predictive um, kinds of approaches that we can use. So did I wonder if the teachers in the audience believe that they have adequate materials 
that they can access to track spelling, or is that you know lagging behind tracking other things? I mean, the, the idea is to have something that's not intrusive, that's not taking you out of other kinds of instruction and other kinds of activities, but nonetheless, if kids are developing in different parts of the system at different rates, uh, or need more or less help and you know, differentiated instruction based on where they currently are. Uh, I'm wondering if spelling is also getting sort of second class status here. Do, is, are, do we have good methods for um, doing these kind of non-intrusive but nonetheless informative assessments so that people can figure out how to, um, uh, what to emphasize with different kids? Or is it another thing that's kind of, um, we still need to, we, we need better tools for spelling. I think we do more work on that. Um, it might be really said. hard to track. And, and it might be time consuming, I would think. I don't know. Well, spelling, uh, you use the word second class status. Spelling uh, is often given second class status compared to reading. We tend to focus more on reading than on spelling in instruction. Researchers have tended to focus much more on reading than on spelling. Likewise, in assessment, I think we know less yes. about yes. spelling than about reading. And I think there are ways of doing it that um, use, I mean, we can use the writings that kids are producing anyway. We don't necessarily need a specialized test because kids are writing anyway. If we can get information from what they're already doing, we don't need to. Um, yeah, but you know, analyzing those spelling mistakes again, I'm sure there are teachers in the audience who've done this quite a lot. And analyzing the basis of what the kid's spelling error is is time consuming. It takes a long time. And and if I'm just hoping that we can develop a better, more efficient ways to deliver information about kids' spelling than having a teacher have to pour over the examples and figure out um, where, where 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 Mary is at and compared to Johnny. Um, There's ways of getting a computer to do that for you. We don't have that yet, right. but we can we can take a kid's uh, spelling, um, have a computer program analyze the distance between the child spellings and the correct spellings or the plausible mm -hmm. spellings. And so this is something that we don't have yet, but that we may have in the future. Uh, this is something that we're trying to work toward. We're doing some of that in our own research. It's not yet available in a way that teachers it's can coming. use, but the idea would be this, this, this kind of thing is coming. So I just want to emphasize the point that you just made before, which was spelling is interesting and important on its own. However, it also tells us something about how reading works and about the integration of these systems. And so it's not second class because, well, people don't have to spell because they can use It is interesting and important, but it's part of this other system. It's not separate. And so, um, uh, you know, people did more research on reading because it's easier to do technically, methodologically. You just have kids read aloud. I think that having analyzing kids' spelling was more difficult. Collecting the data was more difficult for a long time, although it's easier now. Uh, there are various like practical reasons why people did more on reading. Um, and, and there was this idea that spelling comes later or something. But what we're saying is when you're learning about how spelling relates to phonology, 
It's also telling you things that are relevant about how phonology relates to spelling. And those systems are interacting, they're influencing one another. So when you're teaching kids about spelling, you're also teaching them about reading, things that are relevant to reading and so on. That's right. So That's right. We're, they just getting past this idea of them being separate things. They're just different tasks that are using the same sorts of knowledge, right? They're different tasks that are getting at the same underlying knowledge. Yeah. There was debate for a while about, do we have one mental lexicon, one part of our brain where that's spelling, then a different mental lexicon, a different part of our brain for reading. No, it's all one system. And we're just getting added in different ways. We're getting and added in different ways. ways. That's right. Ways, we're, we're, we're querying another, that thing in different ways. We're querying, it's the same system, we're querying it in different ways. And if we yeah. have those spellings, if we can produce those spellings, that's a harder task, but if I can spell necessary, it ensures that I really know it, I can read it more quickly. So learning how to spell the word uh, not only lets you spell it, it also lets you read that word more quickly and more effectively. Becky, we should give them, we should really leave them with a little bit of, a little bit more science about, um, I'm thinking about the research on recall versus recognition and also on um, people's learning about language and about ultimately about print. Um, what they get from, just take language for example, what you get from listening and having to say, answer a question about what you've heard versus producing utterances yourself. So uh, Mary Ellen McDonald and, and, and her, her, her students did these studies in which you compared how much children learned in conditions where most of the learning was by the child having to say something and one could then determine whether it was correct or not versus hearing the correct way to uh, say something and then um, uh, having to evaluate, you know, whether it was correct or not. In other words, there's the amount that you can learn from hearing, comprehending language versus the amount that you can learn from producing. And the argument is that production is, it's a harder task, but it also, uh, it's a more effective form of learning. Like you get more learning for your, your, your for the, from the activity than you do from just from comprehending. So, you know, producing the spelling might be a more strong, have more impact on learning than hearing the word and have, you know, and seeing how it's spelled. Um, mm -hmm. So the product, the fact that you have to produce a spelling, it's a special kind of activity that may actually lead to longer term learning than um, more efficiently than, you know, other things that we do that are more based on comprehension. Another argument for looking at spelling. That's an, another good argument for looking at spelling. Not only with spelling and reading, but in all aspects of learning, production is really production. Important. Yes, this is production. Yes, our colleague Mary Ellen McDonald's real emphasis right now is on production as a unique sort of um, aspect of learning, and it. I, I think the, the the evidence is really clear and. It certainly fits in with your observations about the importance of spelling. Now, we've had a great discussion and we've gone on a while. <laughs> Have we answered any questions from the audience? Have, 
have we done, can we let these folks go? Cause it's, and enjoy the rest of their, their day. Uh, how shall we um, finish up here, Molly? I think you've done a great job of modeling what it's like when you get a couple of researchers together, just talking about all their work over the years and how it relates to everybody else's work. And it's an all an integrated system, which is great. Um, I think we've done a pretty good job of hopefully getting to quite a few of the questions. We of course couldn't get to all of them, but, um, and people should feel free to send me more questions. If we, if, you know, if you wanna know more about a resource or a study, I'll post some of the things we've talked about on the website um, so that you yeah. can ask the reference. Yeah, I'll be happy uh, to send you some Molly to post on the website. Um, so Becky, you are the world expert on spelling. Thank you for being with us. <laughs> I know. I'm, this is I a lot know. of fun. If that didn't sound sincere, it, it, that's as sincere as I get. And, and it, it is. Well, it's a pleasure to have someone who has such deep knowledge about something that, by the way, is really crucial. Spelling is a small field. There's not as many researchers looking at it as reading. But one thing that I hope to have done throughout my career studying spelling is to kind of get people interested, get more research to be done uh, to show the importance of spelling. So I'm really glad to have had this opportunity to discuss that with all of you. I think you greatly influence theories which now take view these things as uh, complementary systems that are influencing one another in development. And if we just take it to the next level, then people will not feel like they have to teach one thing or the other. They're actually going to be thinking more in terms of integration of uh, things that cover both and uh, integrate both. And that seems true of research. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everyone, for okay, joining. Bye. See you all okay, next week. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this reading meeting recording. You can find more information about past and future reading meetings on our website. We hope you'll join us for future meetings.